Well, I could watch that family interact for a long time. Wasn't that great? Congratulations to Chuck and Diane East for raising these beautiful daughters. And happy Father's Day to all of you. And we celebrate Father's Day today and congratulate you on, on your important work, most important work. Just a reminder, in October, we're having a men's retreat here, and I hope you'll come. If, if, if you're a good father, this will kick you up a couple of notches. If you're struggling in your manhood in some category, this will encourage and inspire you. So I hope you'll plan to be with us uh, in the retreat this October. So thank you so much for that. Well, today I want to talk about draining the swamp. It's about time, wouldn't you say, to drain the swamp? Everyone, all weekend, it's great to watch everyone just get real sober. (laughs) This is not a political message at all today, just in case you were wondering. Uh, I just thought it was a catchy phrase. Uh, But if you're looking for a political uh, position or posture or sermon, uh, you've come to the wrong place today. I want to talk about the swamp that all of us find ourselves in from time to time, emotionally and relationally. Uh, The Bible actually uh, phrases it as the miry bog, and we get bogged down, don't we, from time to time in our lives, in our relationships, and in our emotions. And so today I want to talk about some insight that King David gives us in the Psalms that will, I hope, uh, help us get out of the doldrums and the disappointments that come in our lives inevitably. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Psalm 40 and then Psalm 22. Psalm 40 and then Psalm 22, we're going to read the first five verses of each of those psalms, and we'll begin with Psalm 40. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we'll project these words on the screen for you, and I'll invite you to stand to honor God's Word. Psalm 40. Now, this is really our malady, and Psalm 22 gives us uh, some coping mechanisms and our hope. So Psalm 40 describes where we are. Verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, or the swamp, and out of the mud and mire. And he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you plan for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. And now over to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried, cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. And may God encourage and inspire us through his word today. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now, I want to focus on a prayer and keep this prayer going through the whole message this morning. The prayer goes like this, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. Now, here's what I want. When I use the phrase, Lord, have mercy, I want you to respond out loud together, Christ, have mercy. So, you ready to practice? Lord, have mercy. One more time, Lord, have mercy. All right, so hang on to that. Let me tell you that a businessman's wife became depressed. 
Every week, she became more and more sad. There was no life, no joy, no sparkle. And finally, this modern man of the world took his wife to see a therapist. The counselor began the conversation with the woman, and after just a few minutes, being a wise and perceptive person, got out of his chair, walked over to the woman, extended his hands to her, helped her out of her chair, stood her up in front of her, and looked longingly into her eyes for, for, for what seemed like too long. And then he took his arms and wrapped them around this woman and gave her a great big warm bear hug. Almost immediately, you could see a change in this woman's demeanor. She softened, her eyes lit up, her whole face began to glow. The therapist looked to the husband sitting in the room there and said, see, that's all she needs. And to that, the husband said, that is, that's great. He said, I can bring her in on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> Depression is one of the most common emotional problems in America. Hospitals are full of people who are depressed, full of people with emotional and psychological challenges. And that's not to mention the huge number of other people in our culture today who may not be to the place of hospitalization, but who suffer from discouragement, disappointment, and the distractions of life. Um, the blues affect all of us from time to time. And of course, it can, it can move into a more day-by-day, -day, more intensely discouraging time that may require medical help or psychiatric help. And so this unique challenge affects every one of us. No one's immune from it. And certainly the community of faith is not immune to it. Christian people suffer in these ways, just as others do. And so we need to be aware of it and to be sensitive to it. Now, here's what happens to us when we begin to feel down and in a dark place. Apathy occurs, the loss of energy an unwillingness to risk, think about it now, the loss of our nerve, fear can grip us and surround us and paralyze us. And sometimes we also develop this overwhelming feeling of unworthiness. I just don't measure up. I'm not like other people. I don't have what I need. And this unworthiness grips us and holds us in place. Are you with me? Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Now, we begin to experience in these down times apathy and grief, despondency, sadness, helplessness, and this lack of a willingness to risk, this aversion to, to really living your life out on the edge and, and going for it and getting busy and, and living to your fullest potential. And so we find in the Psalms some insight. David, who lived a thousand years before Jesus, 3,000 years from us, King David now writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in these Psalms, gives us some perspective. He calls the place we go to a swamp, a miry bog, uh, you know, a, a marsh where we get bogged down and our feelings are swamped. And, and so then in Psalm 22, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's actually prophesying, in a sense, what will happen to Jesus while he hangs on the cross at Calvary. It's a, it's a prophetic sign 
of what is to come a thousand years later. And yet, David is also, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, expressing his own emotional pain, this, this low place that he's in, and gives us some confidence in ways that we can cope with those seasons of our own life. So, on your outline, you'll see a few things that we can learn from Psalm 22. Ways to cope. And the first one is this. You'll want to write this down. We need to practice honest evaluation. Practice honest Evaluation. Now, verse 1, Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that rings a bell, doesn't it? That's a familiar phrase. Jesus uttered that phrase from the cross. He knew about Psalm 22, and he understood the prophetic context of that statement, I'm sure. But it was also a reflection of how he was truly feeling. It was an honest expression of his reality as he hung on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt utterly alone. The God-forsaken God, if you will. And so there is this honest, honesty about Jesus that is a model for us. And I don't know what it is about Christians. I suppose someone has sorted this out. But we have a difficulty admitting that we're not on top of things all the time. There's this notion in the Christian community, and I don't know how it develops for sure, but there's this notion that we should always be uh, on the top of the thing. We should be effervescing, you know, like a bubbling soda drink. We should always, always just be floating on the surface of whatever's happening in life. But you know, and I know, that that's just not the way it goes. Life is filled with all kinds of unique challenges and, and things that deflate us. And, and we find ourselves in a, in a low spot, a dark spot, and in in the swamp, if you will, in a miry bog. We're bogged down, and it happens to us, and we should be honest about that. One of the, one of the things that exacerbates this, this confusion in our culture today is the way we communicate with one another in social media. Uh, most people who post things on their Facebook page only post the good things. So you got all the best stories, you got all the pretty photos, you got all the nice events, and other people who read these posts on Facebook and other media sources only see the good stuff that's happening in people's lives. And this sociology is already studying this effect on young people. It's one of the reasons why young people are finding it difficult to actually launch their lives after they, after they get of age. That, that young people now, and this is all statistically proven, young people now are hesitant to start a career. They are waiting longer and longer to get married. They are hesitating to leave their parents' nest. All that stuff is happening. This failure to launch is being complicated by the nature of social media because when you look at the average person's Facebook page, you see nothing but the good stuff and the person looking at it imagines their life is perfect and, and everybody else's life I look at on Facebook is perfect. And I know darn good and well, full well, that my life is not perfect. Everybody else is perfect. I'm not. There must be something wrong with me. And as a result of that, it makes people hesitant. It actually paralyzes people, uh, induces fear in people, and they're afraid to launch. They're afraid to get on with it because it won't be perfect. That makes sense, doesn't it? This is happening in our world. And so we live in denial about some of these issues that are very, very real in our mind, and our emotions, our relationships. So we've got to get real. Let's just remind you that Jesus couldn't maintain perfect emotional decorum all the time either. 
in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night of the betrayal, Jesus prayed, if this cup can pass from me, he's sweating like great drops of blood. I mean, this is an emotionally charged person. This is a horrible moment for him. This is a dark, dark place. And the next day, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung on the cross. And so we see Jesus being completely real with us and the world around him in the midst of his emotional pain. Let me tell you the story of Parker Ferris. Parker Ferris was a pastor and for 60 years or so was a a model of Christian leadership. Just a remarkable career and a wonderful life. People who who knew Parker and, and were part of his congregations over the years said that he had a wonderfully calm and serene spirit that his preaching and his writing always induced courage and hope. You know, a marvelous Christian leader. After Parker Ferris's passing, someone found in his uh, documents a prayer which he had written on a napkin some years before. And I want to share that prayer with you. I want you to see it. See if you can resonate with it. I'll put it on the screen for you. He said, Lord Jesus, I would like to be able to do myself the things I help others do. I can give them confidence I myself do not have. I can quiet their anxieties, but not my own. What do I lack, or is it the way I'm made? I like to think you can be with me and be in me, and with your help, I can do better. That's what I hope and ask for. Can I get a witness anywhere? Does that resonate with you? Yeah. We all feel that way from time to time. And so my first thought is simply this, that we need to be honest about our state. We need to keep it real. And if we'll do that, that'll help us in the process. Now here's number two. Another coping mechanism that we find in Psalm 22 is to use your memory, use your memory to affirm confidence and faith. Use your memory. Verses four and five of Psalm 22, in you our fathers put their trust. David writes, now, he's, he's retrospecting. He's looking back. He said, he said, our forefathers put their trust in you. They trusted you and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and they were not disappointed. So David is reminding us that if we'll think back to the times in our life when, when life was better and more joyful you'll recall that God was a good God and a faithful God to us in that season of our lives. And the same God who was faithful in your yesterdays is the God who will be faithful in your today and tomorrows. Now, I love the way David wrestles with this. He doesn't just say it's going to be okay and, and move on. He, he processes, he gets into it in Psalm 22. Verse 6, he, he, he goes back into his pain. He says, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by man and despised by the people. Again, this, this, this connection with Jesus himself in a prophetic way, but in David's own life, being honest and real about his own pain. And then he brings hope. Verse 9, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. And so he reminisces about God's goodness and faithfulness. Then, verse 14, back into the despair and the depression. But I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. And so he connects with how he's feeling about how much despair there is and how much hopelessness 
he's experiencing. But then verse 19, back up again with the confidence. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to deliver me. And so we see this confident hope that is found when we think about God's faithfulness to us in the past. So when we're in the miry bog, that slimy pit, bound by apathy, when we've lost our nerve, when we're drained of energy, we feel like a failure, when we've lost our confidence because of feelings of unworthiness and guilt, that's when we reach back in our memory and we recall an experience when God was with us, when life was bright and hopeful, and we rely on that. We look back and we remember God's faithfulness that inspires confidence and inspires hope. So we hang on to that. Now let's look at a third coping mechanism found in Psalm 22, number three on your outline, and that is verse 22, which is a call to witness and praise. A call to witness and praise. Now you're going to have to st stay with me here. You're going to have to have to lean into this because this does not make sense. This is not intuitive. You'll have to resist your natural tendencies on this point if you're going to apply it in your life. But the call in verse 22 is to witness and praise. It says, I will declare your name to my brothers. I will declare your name to my brothers and in the congregation, I will praise you. I'll declare your name, I'll give witness, and I will praise you, no matter the circumstance. Now, the temptation when we're in the swamp is to retreat into ourselves and our own pain and our own self-pity. That's, that's right. We tend to separate ourselves from friends and family and the larger community. We, we can become then engaged in our own self-pity and our own pain and our own wounds and all the, all the darkness, that, the swamp that is around us. And this is when people become very self-indulgent and self-destructive. This is when people start taking drugs. This is when people imbibe with alcohol. They go, they, they go to pornography. They, they engage in compulsive shopping. They do overeating, they cut themselves. There are all kinds of self-indulgent, destructive behaviors that people engage when they find themselves in this level of pain. They, they turn inward into their own painful, private world. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. So our desire for relationships with others then oftentimes gets negated by our woundedness. The thing that we actually need more than anything else is which, which is connection with God and connection with other people are the very things that we tend to disconnect from in these moments. And so this isolation that we tend to find ourselves in, this withdrawing from the connections that are helpful and meaningful and redemptive they, they tend to cause us to disregard or to minimize our real needs. And so we, we lose the hunger for intimacy. We, we find deadened in our soul the need to love and to be loved and to really embrace meaningful connection with God and with others. Let me put this on the screen for you because I want to give you that perspective. And it's simply this, that apathy, not hatred, is the opposite of love. 
Do you have an ear for that? Now just let that soak in. Apathy, not hatred, is the opposite of love. It, I, it denies our loneliness and, and our need for intimate relationships. So when you hear yourself say or you hear someone else say things like, well, I just don't care, or, or it doesn't matter, or oh, well, whatever, and there are plenty of other fish in the sea, no big deal to me, what's the difference? Watch out. Be careful there. Apathy is gaining control and closing in on you. But the psalmist says, I have an antidote for that. I, I, have, a, I have a remedy for that. And this is, this is what it is. It is witness, a declaration of your confidence in God and praise that if you would actually give worship to God, that that will empower your life in such moments. Now, we may not be able to celebrate with praise that is, that is all great because of the circumstances of our lives. We may not be able to praise with, a, with, an, with an exclamation mark. We may be praising with a question mark. But praise releases God's presence. Let me put this statement on the screen because I want you to get this if you can. When you rejoice over God's goodness in your life, power will come. No matter the circumstances. No matter the circumstances. There is power in praise. Now our voices of praise may crack. But praise releases God's power nonetheless. The evening that my wife Beth became a Christian, surrendered her life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I had invited her to a church service where a notable rising Christian author was uh, going to be speaking. His name was Merlin Carruthers. Some of you know that name. I, now, raise your hand if you know anything. When I say Merlin Carruthers, you know it. His most popular book was Prison to Praise, and then he wrote the next year, Power in Praise. Does that ring a bell? These are the old people in the room. Merlin Carruthers was a World War II and Korean War veteran and hero and chaplain in the, in the services. He was a great, great American, great, great person. And he wrote these books based on this truth that God had revealed to him coming from the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called to his purposes. So based on this truth, this foundational truth that God causes all things to work together for good, Merlin Carruthers reasoned that God should be praised not just in spite of, in spite of bad circumstances, but that we should praise him for our circumstances, whether they were good or bad. So he said, if life is good and all is joy and everything's great, God should be praised. God is good all the time, and we should praise him for that. And he said, when life is bad and even tragic and horribly painful and disappointing and confusing, he said, even in that, we should praise God because we know that a trustworthy, faithful God is causing all things, including these things, to work together for our good according to those who love him. And so his whole premise was, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. And it, and it doesn't, you know, you start thinking about circumstances, you go, I can't praise God for that. And that, but that was the message. And he stood in front of us that night, 
And he told us story after story about his own experience. And one of those experiences was he bought a brand new car. It was his dream car. He'd been saving up for years. He wanted that car in that style, in that color. It was his, it was his goal in life to own that car one day. And he finally bought that car. He said he didn't have that car off the lot 10 minutes until someone ran a stop sign and put a huge wrinkle in his new car. He said, now, what do you do? This is your dream car. He said, this is what I did. He said, the man who hit me knew that he'd run the stop sign. And he was so apologetic. He was out there. Well, I'm so sorry. But he said, I was just standing there thanking God, praising God that my new car had just been smashed. <laughs> and when you hear that, you go, well, he's crazy. Yeah, he's crazy. He's nuts. He's lost, he's lost connection with reality. But as it turns out, Merlin Crothers was on to something because there really is power in praise. And by that, I mean when you praise God, God's presence fills the circumstance. As it turns out, in his presence, there's fullness of, God, of, of joy. And when we worship him, God inhabits the praise of his people. It's an interesting truth that is applicable no matter what. And so Beth and I began to learn from Merle Crothers and others of the power of giving thanks in everything to praise God because it literally releases his presence and therefore his power to have confidence and hope no matter the circumstances. Now listen, I'm just, I'm just talking. You can do whatever you want. If someone runs into your new car, you can just get out and, and you know, lay in the fetal position and cry, 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 and just be sad. Okay, that's my car. You can be sad. You can be sad for the next six months. Just be depressed. Get way down there. Get dark. Get into a dark place. Have a pity party. Get the hats. It says pity on it. And the little horns. <laughs> little pity party horns. And throw confetti. Just have yourself the biggest pity party that you can imagine see how that works out for you. Or you can pause to give a witness to God's goodness in your life and his faithfulness. I don't know why this has happened. I don't know what God wants me to get from it, but I do know God is a good God and he has been faithful to me in my past and he will be faithful to me right now. And I am trusting with a confident hope that only he can provide to me peace that passes understanding that he'll be with me in my tomorrows. And so I give him praise for his goodness in my life. Mm. Here's the last point I want to make. And that is to stay close to one another. Stay close to one another. Again, we need to resist the temptation to withdraw. Persons whom you love and others within the Christian fellowship are essential to our perspective for our well-being. When we are in the swamp, we tend to judge ourselves more harshly. We tend to judge others more harshly. Whatever the monster is in the swamp tends to get bigger and meaner and, and nastier. When we are alone, thing tends to grow out of proportion when we isolate ourselves. And so stay close for perspective, for encouragement, for support, for hope. My heart, my heart for everyone at Union Chapel, and this has been true for many years, is that there wouldn't be a single person in our fellowship who is so isolated and disconnected from meaningful relationship 
that they don't have the care and the encouragement and the accountability and the support that they need in meaningful relationships. And so I just, I nudge you again. Uh, Christianity is not a solo sport. It just isn't. And if you tend, if you tend to try to go solo, uh, you, are at, you are at a risk level that uh, would make me very suspicious that you'll be able to get to the finish line well. You just, you can't do this alone. And so we need to stay close to one another. Let me tell you one more story, we'll be done. Uh, Philip Yancey is one of my favorite Christian authors. My favorite book from Philip Yancey is a book entitled, What is So Amazing About Grace? <laughs> I, I just love that book, I recommend it to you uh, to read. In another of his books called Reaching the Invisible God, he tells the story of an experience his wife had. Uh, she leads a little prayer group in a nursing home each week, and in the group there's a woman named Betsy who suffers from Alzheimer's disease. And Betsy has to be led into the meeting every week, and Janet Yancey has to introduce herself to Betsy every week because Betsy doesn't remember her. And at one point, Janet was made aware that Betsy had retained her ability to read uh, in spite of her Alzheimer's. And Betsy would have no comprehension of what she was reading and would often repeat the same line over and over again so someone would bump her and say, you know, move forward. And so then she would keep reading. And on a good day, she could read a passage clear through with a good sense of meaning. So Janet began calling on Betsy each week to read the hymn that the ladies had selected. And most times, because this was a group of older women in the nursing home, they would select one of the traditional hymns to sing. And in one particular week, they picked the old rugged cross. And that's the hymn they would sing. And so Janet called on Betsy to read the verses. And Betsy began. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And suddenly Betsy stopped. And she became agitated. And she said, I can't go on. It's so sad. It's so sad. And it surprised her friends, the other seniors in her group, because they had never seen Betsy, not for years, had they ever seen Betsy able to put her own words together with meaning. And so they were stunned by it. And it was as though she, she did understand and Janet calmed her down. It's okay, Betsy, you don't have to read if you don't want to. But Betsy composed herself and then continued. But yet again, stopped at the same place. The emblem of suffering and shame. And she stopped again. And now tears welled up and fill, filled her face, just fell down both sides of her face. And she just kept saying over and over again, it's so sad. It's so sad. When Betsy was finally able to be calmed down, Janet led her to the elevator to return her to her room. And as they were going along, to Janet's amazement, Betsy started singing the hymn from memory. She said her words were in breathy, chopped phrases. She could barely carry the tune. But anyone would recognize the tune and the hymn if they had heard her. And as tears once more began to flow down Betsy's face, she sang, on a hill far away 
stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And she stopped. But then she picked it up. And I love that old cross. Where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. She stopped again. But then she went on. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Philip Yancey commenting on this event, he said, and I quote, somewhere in that tattered mind, damaged neurons had tapped into a network of old connections to resurrect a pattern of meaning for Betsy. In her confusion, only two things stood out, suffering and shame. And we could say, friends, today that those two words maybe are the best two words to summarize the human condition, suffering and shame. Because as human beings on a journey on this planet, we are all acutely aware and intimately in touch with suffering and shame. And the question then is raised, and who would know more about suffering than shame than Betsy? Think about her suffering and her shame. She has lost her mind. What a horrible thing. And so who knows better about suffering and shame than Betsy? Well, the answer for Betsy was found in the hymn. Jesus does. He knows more about suffering than shame. And somehow Betsy connected to that truth and was helped by the Spirit of Christ ministering to her at the point of her suffering and shame. And here's my take home. This is the conclusion concluding statement, if the same spirit that touched that sweetheart Betsy in the nursing home with that beautiful hymn, the truth of Christ's connection to us, even in the midst of our suffering and shame, how much more then might the Spirit of God minister to your life in your discouragement, your disappointment, and even your despair? I'd like for us to read together as we conclude today those verses from Psalm 40 to remind us of God's promise to us. So would you look on the screen with us now? Psalm 40, let's read it out loud together. Can we do that? Those first five verses, are you ready? Together, let's read. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many 
to declare. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have you today. We are so thankful. And if the Spirit moved the psalmist, how much more so will you lift us up and deliver us from whatever disappointment, whatever discouragement, whatever depression. And so today, in this moment, by faith, we lay hold of that promise. We lay hold of you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?